You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Welcome to another episode of Speaking Duck here on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Today, I get to nerd out with one of the <laughs> nicest people. He's already laughing in Canada's culinary landscape. And that's probably because he has the best job in the world. My guest today is a Canadian bestseller, author of 21 cookbooks and counting, of which 17 are award-winning. He's been a guest star on shows like Discovery Channel's Daily Planet, Live with Regis and Kelly, our very own Breakfast Television, Q107, CBC, and many more Canadian and Torontonian institutions. When Canada has a barbecue, they look for their king of the queue, the godfather of the grill. They seek out that barbecue guy. I'm with the one, the only, Ted Reader. Welcome, Ted. Hey, Alex. Good to be here. Thank you so much for coming. I've been a fan of yours since I knew what a barbecue was. <laughs> I think I've learned everything about Napoleons or green eggs or anything to do with barbecue. Seriously, from you. And I don't joke about this kind of stuff because my listeners know I'm a southern barbecue fanatic okay nothing gets better than the flavor of smoke uh-huh you know uh, people are always like sweet bitter sour smoke people are like beetles or the rolling stone i said pink floyd baby you know what i mean i need <laughs> that extra flavor that's not even on the palate that's it when did smoke become oh like when did you become aware of what smoke and the power of smoke I would say in the mid nineties, uh, for, for me as a chef and working in, in the industry, uh, I knew about smoke as, as that in restaurants, um, a number of the different restaurants or the hotels that I worked for, uh, had smokers and we were smoking things, but simple things like sides of salmon or trout. Um, they weren't doing that Southern barbecue of low and slow pork shoulder or a brisket or smoked chicken thighs. They weren't doing any of that stuff. It was you know ribs were boiled way back then and it, it grandma was special grandma special boil your ribs and but there's been an evolution and sometimes you're you know i look in in some of my older books from 10 years ago from 15 years ago and i look at some of the recipes i did back then and then i i, I look at social media today and i'm going yeah i did that 15 years ago and and that's <laughs> There's there's an evolution. At some point, things become more popular. Things have changed because of social media. We didn't have this back when I was in my 30s. Now I'm in my, you know, I'm a fucking old guy. And, Wise but, old man. Well, Wise, a wisdom it's, filled. It's a wisdom filled and, and, and bourbon based it. <laughs> but it's, um, for me, the, the, the smoke was part of my culinary world. But in terms of Canadians and Canadian barbecue, Smoke is only really started to, to gain its speed in the last 10 years, with the last five years being explosive. And, and that has expanded and is expanding on a daily basis. People talk barbecue in Canada. They're talking about a gas grill in your backyard. And that's the way it was. And when I started out, I wanted to cook on charcoal, but, you know, nobody was cooking on charcoal. Very few people were cooking on charcoal. Very few people had smokers. And most people had 
a gas grill. And it was probably a two burner on a 20 pound propane tank. And, you know, they cost them a hundred bucks and, you know, they threw it away after two years or got five years out of it and the longevity as much as they could get out of those gas grills. But gas grills, and, and I appreciate gas grills, and I, and I won't say I dislike them. My evolution is that I much prefer the hard work of charcoal and the hard work of hardwood and learning about the what the woods and the charcoals, what flavors they impart to the food and how they're part of an ingredient and how they're part of the whole cooking process. And that if you go back to those caveman days when, when cavemen cooked on an open fire and that evolution I see is coming on strong. People want that smoke. Um, they want to taste that low and slow and they want that penetration of that sweet smoke that comes from the type of wood that you use and also comes from the seasoning that you put on whatever you're cooking and different woods for different meats different woods for different fishes it gives you uh, a multitude of recipes that you can create and enjoy and so now people are no longer just having a gas grill a gas grill is a convenience i come home from work i'm tired i just want a burger and you fire it up and you cook a burger but now there's a charcoal kettle in the backyard and there's a, maybe a pellet smoker or a big kamado smoker like a big green egg or a Kamada Joe or a Primo and those kinds of things all of a sudden their backyards have two and three different outdoor apparatuses to cook on and there's maybe some burners and these elaborate outdoor kitchens you know no one had outdoor kitchens except for the super rich and now it's you know with our four months of summer and eight months of miserable cold we want to be outside we want to utilize our backyards and cook and so for me i'm excited to see this whole evolution of charcoal and fire and smoke coming about i think it's exciting what are the basics that mm -hmm. we need to know because i live in downtown toronto you know the majority of my friends don't know what a charcoal barbecue looks like you know they don't know what a smoker looks like they can't have even a little hibachi on their patio you know what i mean because they're stuck in downtown and then you know those who live in suburbia you know which i dream of only for their backyard you know what i mean i wish i could yeah. have downtown life just so i can area i have an area in my backyard to like smoke you know a, a roast for nine hours you know it, it's lost on them i feel like i come downtown i try to go to these hipster barbecue spots for my love of that american flavor we kind of miss the mark here a little bit it's hard to get that kind of sense when you you know i've traveled to nashville detroit even you know like you go mm -hmm. to the barbecue but there's some amazing low and slow here it's i mean D D toronto is not a low nor slow city there are a couple of guys in the city um that are doing low and slow adamson exactly and and there is but the the thing about barbecue is that really great barbecue has to be fresh and that means you start cooking a brisket when the brisket is done cooking you eat the brisket and you run out of the brisket our problem in the restaurant industry is that we don't have the resources to have and can't afford to have all the labor in the kitchen that is required to run smokers on a constant basis true so what a lot of barbecue places are doing is 
let's cook all our brisket on a Monday and then we vacuum pack it and we reheat it in water or we shred it and we put it in and we heat it in a kettle. Interesting. And, and I'm not saying everybody does that. But there are a lot of barbecue places that are taking that shortcut because it's convenient to smoke a pork shoulder and pull the pork and then let it cool and put it in a vacuum bag and add in a certain amount of sauce. And then you heat it in a, in a kettle, in a pot, you get your yield, you keep it moist and it goes out as a hot sandwich and it's everybody's happy. But the best barbecue is, is what I call all of that is leftovers. I don't want day-old barbecue. I want it to come out of the smoker, and I want to be able to eat it. And and that's why I don't go out to a lot of barbecue restaurants, because the shortcuts piss me off. And I believe that if you're going to do it, then do it. There are shortcuts that are necessary. Business is business. But if you're going to tout being that guy, then fire it up. And I, I know the boys down at Cherry Street Barbecue in Toronto. They got an oiler drum. They got an offset barrel there. They're firing it. They're stoking it. They're cooking it. And they're running out. That's the kind of stuff you want to have. That's where you get your best barbecue. And you're going to get inconsistencies because the brisket will change from day to day. And the cook will change. And the weather will change. And you have to appreciate that. And sometimes barbecue isn't supposed to be consistent like a mcdonald's hamburger okay barbecue has a personality and it has a life of its own starting with the fire and that fire what comes through gives you real flavor i like pellet smokers they're convenient but you know there's no better fire than a real fire the real fire from wood that burns down and creates that beautiful even heat and that beautiful beautiful sweet smoke that's good barbecue. Well, let's get to the <clears throat> basics. Uh, we're local to having applewood mm -hmm. in Canada or in Toronto and Ontario specifically. Lots of apple vineyards. We have we have in Ontario. Um, I use right now. I am using exclusively Ontario woods, and I have black cherry, peach, apple, um, sugar maple, oak, pecan hickory all that are and birch that are all from ontario including grapevines so there's a lot of great woods that we can find here it's it's hard to find really clean barbecue wood there's a lot of guys selling firewood and kiln dried firewood burns hot burns fast and it doesn't burn clean and so you don't want to go to the like the gas station and buy that big bag of wood to think that you're going to smoke something no. great with that because that's just shitty that's right you got to find a guy that's got great wood um it has taken me 30 years to find the right wood guy and i have found the guy and his his name is jeff furtado and he's out of the Kitchener-Waterloo area, and he has a wood business, and it's called Furtado Farms Cookwood, and they produce beautiful, beautiful, clean Ontario wood, um, air-dried, covered, with uh, with no mold, with no dirt. It's clean wood. And that's what you want. When you put that wood into your fire, you don't want big clumps of dirt on there. You don't want moisture underneath the bark. You don't want mold in the wood. Um, you want clean wood. 
wet wood and things like that, get your fire started with that stuff. Use it and, and burn it down and get your ash and your coal going. And then you take your clean wood and that's when you want to burn and create that nice clean smoke from it. And every time I hit a fire, it's a learning experience. I, I, I have a wealth of knowledge. But every time I light a fire, a real fire, and I watch it and I'm looking at the wind and the weather and the humidity and all the stuff that goes on in Canada from a weather perspective, you have to change and modify and adapt how you cook. There's a lot of science to it. I mean, you, we're talking about how, you know, being a chef, there's a lot of kind of artistic creativity to it. But when it comes to barbecue, you really got to play to the elements. Yeah. What's it like? barbecuing in below 20 degree weather like how do you know i know you're famous or infamous if you will for having hundreds maybe you've purged a little bit over the years but tons of smokers and barbecues out in your own backyard so you know maybe not the most ideal kitchen for the rich people style like we've joked before but you know the idea that you have every tool you could ever imagine in your own backyard so you must be experimenting with them in the deep cold i i cook uh, year round I don't barbecue every day. I don't grill every day. I don't smoke every day. I cook every day if if I can. Sometimes you're on a plane so you don't get to cook. But I cook for my family every day. My, my kids, my, my wife. Uh, my wife cooks for us breakfast. And that's it. But the for, for me, that, that backyard is my test kitchen. And currently, there's somewhere between 60 and... 70 grills and smokers in my yard my main back deck that i cook on on probably 80 percent of the time there's 18 to 20 grills and smokers on that that deck uh, and then there's a lower deck which has another 10 that i cook on a fair amount and then there's a retired graveyard at the back and then there's a number of uh the garage the shed there's grills and smokers from tiny little things all the way up to my barbecue rig that sits in the driveway. Are you so collecting these people, giving them to you? They they arrive. They like, arrive. like there's one arrived this morning. Really? From where? Um, from, who? Uh, from Germany. And it's called an Auto Wild Griller. And it is an infrared grill, like um, uh, a countertop version, propane fired. But it gets up to about 1,800 degrees. Wow. And it cooks a steak like steak house steaks yeah. where it's a salamander from the top down mm -hmm. and so this this grill i haven't i haven't worked with it before but it just arrived today from oh. from the folks at auto wild germans and, love uh, their barbecue oh they do they and it and it is growing yeah rapidly oh, i yeah. just um a month ago i was in germany and i was cooking uh, at a friend's restaurant and it's uh, in the town of erfurt and just a beautiful beautiful spot his restaurant is actually located on hamburger hill and he has this beautiful outdoor beer garden and an outdoor kitchen with probably seven eight smokers there and uh, we did a, uh, a barbecue workshop for about 20 people and then we did a dinner for a hundred there was about seven chefs all with a food station and cooking it up and having a good time i saw the video uh, <laughs> of that workshop it was called dfiu oh don't fuck it up <laughs> <laughs> They're loving you out there. How did how does Germany find out about Ted Reader in Canada? 
Uh, it was it was through Napoleon and my time with ah. Napoleon. It's one of the books that I had done uh, was in conjunction with a couple other German chefs, and it was Napoleon's first cookbook into the German marketplace. And so I had done a, th- a third of the recipes in that, and so the German public got to know who this through Napoleon, who Ted Reader was, and my friend over there was a, a barbecue dealer, and so uh, he did some work for for uh, Napoleon in Germany and then we became friends and he's like I, well I now have this restaurant and I'm out of the barbecue distribution game I'm into you know I own a, a beautiful cafe restaurant with his wife who's a, a Michelin star chef and they cook seasonal and local and it's one menu item in the night like it's a three course set menu that's it and it's beautiful it's a beautiful spot to sit and enjoy and it's a great place to cook and uh what do they ask you about in canada what are they like what are the questions they're always so curious about you canadians well, they want to know why I'm a little bit crazy. Um, that that always seems to be, and I say it's in our water. Um, they're a little proper over there. They they're, they're very proper, and it's and I'm far from always <laughs> proper. But I, as I get older, I I slow down a bit. But when I cook, I get crazy. I, I mean, it, for me, it's <clears throat> I love that part of the show. Um, and and sort of now my my style in barbecue is I don't want to know things. Uh, I don't want to know what I'm cooking. Just give me some stuff, right? I send you a list of what I love to play with. You let me know what you get. And when I get there, give it to me and I'll figure out how I'm going to cook it. You're like an improv jazz musician. Exactly. I'm doing a demo tonight at the, at the Gentleman's Expo. And... Two months ago, they sent me an email and said, you know, what do you want to cook? And can you put your recipe and your ingredients together? And uh, Afram Pristine from Cheese Boutique, they're supplying all the food Everybody ingredients. Afram. And, and put it all together and da-da-da. And I said, just tell Afram to pick me some stuff. Nice. And I would rather walk in and and cook from my heart and cook with my love of of food and passion and it makes for a much better show and it's more fun and more interactive and it's exciting and i I think you know it's uh you know i'm a heroin addict for barbecue if you put it that way that's for me it's it's you know when i light a fire it's fun that's the best part your heroin analogy helps my jazz analogy so this is perfect (laughs) there you go so back in canada it's the dead of winter i want a barbecue is it as simple as layering up extra fire wood? You know, what What do I need to know to make sure that I can continually have the same experience, whether it's my green egg, my barrel smoker, what am I doing differently? So, in the so let me, let me give you the, 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 the details. If you got a gas grill in your backyard, natural gas is the far better way to go than propane for the winter time. Propane, the tanks, as they empty, they get super, super cold and the propane doesn't flow. Gas gives you a constant heat. The problem with every gas grill out there, that the metal is too thin, our winters are so cold that the second you open that lid, you lose all your heat. I have one gas grill, only one in my yard, and that's it. I and I barely turn it on now. Napoleon? It is a Napoleon. And but I'm about that fire, but I still like my Napoleon. Um there's certain things on it that that's where my wife wants it cooked. But to keep the heat in, I put grilling stones. 
They're one inch thick soap stones and you could use a, 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 a heat resistant marble and it's, it's very dense uh, soapstone, lava rock stone, there's, uh, there's salt blocks, all kinds of things. You heat those stones up in the winter. You open that lid, yeah, your heat leaves the grill, but those stones are 500 degrees and they stay hot. And so then, you know, you can sear like a cast iron pan, you can sear on the stone and cook a steak or fry a fish, or you can do a thousand and one things on the stove. Do a smash burger. It doesn't matter, you just modify how you cook and you're still outdoors doing it. Rotisserie works well. Things that you can cook a little bit longer and a little slower with the lid closed, that's how you use a gas grill. If you're going to get into charcoal grilling, you need to have a lot of charcoal. The winter time will suck two to three times the amount of coal that you would use in the summer. And so where, where I use a 10 pound bag of charcoal to fire my grill in September, uh, I'm using 20 pounds to keep it going through whatever cook I'm going to do now. And in January, it's even colder that when it's that cold, it's just sucking the heat out of your fire and you're forever throwing on logs. And I, I think it was two years ago, three years ago, uh, Christian Pritchard and myself, we did uh, an episode for Stephen and Chris winter grilling from my backyard. It was minus 35 degrees Celsius the day we shot. Clear and sunny, beautiful, but with the wind, it was uh, about minus 45. And I went through a quart of wood we had seven different grills and smokers going, but I burned through a quart of wood. It just was sucking. You know, you'd put a log in and turn around and it was gone. And it was amazing to watch how that cold affects it. You got to be prepared when you go out to cook in the cold. One, you need to be dressed. And I wear layers. Long johns are a good thing. Good thick pair of jeans. You know, snow pants, depending if it's a blizzard and how cold it is and where you live in this great country. Um, and then you want to... A toque, mitts that you can don't mind getting dirty and throwing out or fingerless mitts. Those things are great. Me, I, I'm lucky. I have a heated garage. I go into my garage and my whole backyard patio's there so I can duck in and out and stay a little bit warmer. But when you fire up five or six uh, grills and smoker, it's three to four degrees warmer already. So you just sit back there and relax. For your fires, make sure you have enough charcoal. Make sure you have enough hardwood. Um, <clears throat> good pair of tongs sharp knife do all your mise en place or your preparations in inside and then head outside kettle grills because the metal is is thinner again you will lose a lot of heat when you pull that lid off your best grill for wintertime grilling is a kamado big green egg a primo a kamado joe whichever ones they're thick they're ceramic and they hold that heat and so once it's hot it's hot you pop that lid yeah you lose your residual heat right there it pops open but your core heat that that Kamado itself has the heat in it you close the lid back down you'll be back to temperature in no time just a little burp just a little burp and to check and it all you have to sometimes for the winter modify what you're doing but you want to go out and smoke a brisket at 225 degrees for 12 hours it's going to be hard in a gas grill or in a, in a kettle with the cold outside but in a Kamado 
set it and forget it. Let's talk about these kind of green egg Kamado. It's a phenomenon all of a sudden. And, you know, green eggs weren't around and then about five, ten years ago. Now they're in every backyard. Anybody who yeah. thinks for one second they ever wanted to smoke something and then they end up just burning their hamburgers on it half of the time. Well, it, it's it, it's a whole different process when you get into Kamado cooking and working with the, the eggs. Um they can cook at a very low temperature and they can cook at a very high temperature. You have to learn how to manage that and you have to learn how to cook with the, the lid closed. You keep that lid open, you're creating too much heat and it's actually too hot for the Kamado and you can actually crack your Kamado. Or as what happened to my friends in Germany, uh, they, they were cooking with the lid open and the metal ring got so hot that it expanded and the lid of the egg fell completely out and smashed on the ground. That's a thousand dollar mistake. So you got to cook with the lid closed. And but but it's you also have to be prepared for a larger amount of smoke than you're going to get from a gas grill. The level between a gas grill and then the increase of, of cooking on a Kamado, the increase in smoke flavor is probably 10 times if not more, depending on what you're cooking. And so you have to get used to it. My wife doesn't like Kamados. She's like, it's too smoky for me. And so certain things, you know, if you're doing scallops on it, you don't want to overpower a, a scallop. So I, I switch up my grills to something different. Uh, and, and every time I come into my backyard, depending on what I'm cooking, depends on what I cook on. And so that it keeps me on my toes. And I never make the same recipe twice. I've done 20 beer can chickens, but I do them on different grills and different smokers. And I try this and I brine it this way and I cook it that way and rub it this way. And always trying something a little bit different to keep myself uh, ahead of the game. But what do you think you're doing the most? What's the most common denominator? You know, whether it's a one machine you keep heading towards or one process you keep, you know, there's got to be a tried, tested and true method of something that you can't seem to find another reason to do it otherwise. No, I can't. Wow. Uh, it's, um, I, I, everything, I, my neighbor brought me a deer heart last week and it's a nice neighbor yeah i love my neighbors i got good neighbors. i got one neighbor that bakes bread and pizza and well another. they know what you bring they know right. what you bring to they the know table. what i bring but they bring me over so he brought me this heart and uh he says how are you gonna cook it i'm just gonna cook it on the grill right here on this pit well what are you gonna do to it i'm gonna put salt and pepper on it and that's what i did and and it cooked and cooked and cooked and I cooked it to 145 degrees and it was tender and it was moist it was juicy and it was a beautiful medium and I sliced it thin and we put it on some some toast that we grilled up and and caramelized smoky onions I think we had on there and a drizzle of olive oil and and some uh, espresso infused balsamic vinegar and some partridge berries and that was that was it and it was it was simple and it was fast and there was you know that was all and it was the best heart I've ever eaten it's probably the the hardest hurdle for most people that are smoking is they're always trying to do more and more and more trying to make more elaborate attempts at something that should be completely simple oh yeah i'm the king of elaborate and stupid and <laughs> and i have i have cooked weird stuff and and ridiculous stuff and high calorie stuff and bad for you stuff the best stuff is the simple stuff
a great steak from a great butcher, whether it's wet aged or dry aged, but taking the effort to look at your base ingredients, finding a really good butcher that you can build a relationship with and get some good meat and good sound meat advice. And then you go home and you put some salt and pepper on it and you put it on an open fire and you cook it and it's the best steak you'll ever eat. It's not that you went and bought some Montreal steak spice and you got a you got yourself a, a, a strip loin steak that, that came out of the grocery store in a foam tray because that stuff's nasty. It's not tender. It's not aged. It's not well marbled. Very few places sell, you know, you see a steak deal in a, in a discount banner grocery store. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not AAA, USDA, Prime, whatever it is. It's not. That's the down and dirty meat. And it's got maybe, maybe a week's age on it. And so it's going to be tougher. And they don't trim it like a real butcher would trim it. So it's going to be tougher. And so find that butcher and... Say, I want the best steak, whatever it is, the best steak that you can afford. But you don't have to look at, you see, we, we've taken on as Canadians, instead of following the European style of eating, we started following that American style of eating. And it's giant plates and giant amounts of food. I can sit down and eat a 16-ounce steak, not a problem. I'd love to do it think I did one last night but with George Favallo right but it's not necessary one 16 ounce steak can feed four people beautifully totally. so if you buy a great quality of meat why buy four steaks for $25 when you can buy one great steak for $25 and slice it thinly and cook it perfectly slice it thin and give it to your family and share that with vegetables and salad and and other things and have a meal a sit-down meal with your family right and that's uh, for, for my wife and kids and myself we sit down every day and have dinner together it's important and we're missing that Tel telephones not allowed at our table oh, that's good you know with all this shit that people give us from phones and electronics and the social media right we know more about everybody else in the world than we do our own families and our own kids and it's important that we know more about our family and our children than we do about joe blow in the middle of the sea doing whatever because of whatever that's just entertainment well, speaking family's of entertainment, role. yeah, well, family, hopefully family's your entertainment. I mean, yeah. if I had a crazy dad like you and you know that I do have a crazy dad like you, <laughs> you know, sometimes dinner at the table could be just as entertaining than what's on the internet. It, it, it is it is true. I mean, we, we have, uh, my kids are my, uh, my experiment ground. And so my daughter's a little more reserved with the foods that I cook than my son, but my son's, he's into what whatever I cook. That's good. Daddy, you got eyeballs. I'll eat those eyeballs. Give me the eyeballs. <laughs> I love man. it. I love, love it. the eyeballs. Good for him. Yeah. He's a good kid. What's your background? Uh, my dad is a Newfie. Okay. And was, uh, I'm a first generation Canadian. So my dad was a Newfoundlander born in, uh, born in Bonavista, Newfoundland. And my mother is Latvian. And so her family, my grandfather and my grandmother and my mother were uh, the first Latvians to live in Newfoundland 
back after World War II. And so that's, they met in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. My grandfather was in the pulp and paper business. And um, boy meets girl. And there we are. So I pop up. You when did you were you born in Toronto? I was born in uh, in Georgetown. In Georgetown. In so Georgetown. But grew far. up in Paris, Ontario. Ah, right, right. I did read that. Okay, great. Yeah. So when did you eventually migrate? You know, south. Oh, south, like like to Toronto. Yeah, I came here in 1983 when I went to George Brown College to culinary school for management for culinary management. Yeah, and, which is uh, like the pillar of culinary education well, in, in Canada still yeah. to this day. Still. A lot of the people well, I, I love my Niagara College because I teach. You there. do teach there now. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, but and, but know. George Brown uh, is is definitely um, you know it has a has a has a really great place in my heart. Uh, I was at uh, the Nassau Street campus in Kensington Market, and there was no better place to learn about food because every time you had a break, you went out into the out into the street, into the market, and there were the Asian stores, and there was the chicken shop, and European meats, and globe cheese, and, and the nut lady, and the coffee person, and, and it was just this mecca of food that you you lived and breathed, and then you went back to your class, all inspired, and uh, it was great. The nut lady's still there. Yeah. European Meats is now Sanigan's. Mm-hmm. What was the other place you named? Global Cheese is Global's still, still there, there. Yeah, you know. So you know, some things about this great city never change. That's it. You know, and and it's funny. On any given day, you can go to the market and you can bump into the great chefs of yeah. Toronto because they're sourcing the same food that you are taking home. That's a, there's a lot to be said about the impressive suppliers that we have in Toronto, specifically yeah. in in and around. Uh, we talked about your wood supplier, Furtado. Who's your butcher? Like I, I'm smart enough to not ask you what's the best barbecue because you'll eat anywhere like you're like me like you know if you're happy to be invited somewhere and you're treated to a good barbecue meal listen everybody's going to do it differently the science changes the consistency changes everybody's entitled to cook the way they cook that's right i can't always compare barbecue to the way that i cook barbecue because i cook it one way that's my way and everybody has a different way and i can learn from those other folks but um it's uh, my butcher my local butcher i have a number of butchers uh closest to my house is a place called potenza meats and it's been there it was used to be called miscelleria potenza and it was a, a father and his two sons and it was a local italian old school butcher shop and the neighborhood has changed and the one brother has bought the other brother out and they've made some renovations and they changed the name from miscelleria potenza to potenza meats uh, a little more with with the now and those guys have awesome lamb amazing chicken they got rabbits and and they're great guys and so i i go quite often when it's something i need in my neighborhood when i want to make a burger i go there and i say give me some of that some of that grind it twice add some fat and i take home three to four pounds of ground beef that's fresh and i can make a burger that uh i can cook to a nice medium medium rare and it's juicy and it's still pink in the center and it's a great burger and i don't have to add i don't add anything i put salt and pepper on it when i after i form it and that's it let's talk about the simplicity of barbecue and seasoning and kind of the essentials like again we were talking a little bit about 
the evolution of barbecue and simplicity is key, but we live in this day and age with social media and everybody trying to outdo each other or, you know, you see Salt Bay. I'm sure you've seen mm-hmm. those videos floating around. You know, thank God Salt Bay only uses salt, but at the same time, there's all these, you know, smoke things and liquid smoke and... You know, I like how you are uh, a godfather of the injection. So maybe we can talk about that as well. But, you know, before that simplicity of just salt, pepper, maybe a butter, rosemary injection, you go to some of these restaurants and they're Asian fusion barbecue. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, what? how do we get away from that? Well, we, we, is, is what my point is that I'm trying to get here. Well, we've gotten into that. Um never satisfied we always want more 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 so what's the next crazy what's the next delicious what you know what weird flavor can we make ice cream this week right um you know nothing better is than vanilla bean that's a great ice cream we don't have to have crazy flavors but it's nice to have because people like that variety but i think that um the simpler way and, and, and I've cooked it complicated and I've done it simple. And I just think that the simple way is the better way. It starts with the base ingredients. I was in, a, in Amsterdam and I, was, uh, I went to dinner we, with my wife and we had talked to, you know, I had talked to some friends, you know, where should we go? And they said, well, there's these three young chefs. They've got this hip little restaurant. They're the talk of the town. Go check it out. So we went in and we sat down and we had four little plates. We sat in front of the kitchen and it was all beautiful and it came out all lukewarm, um, but very beautiful and well prepared and well done. But everything was boil in the bag, sous vide, cooked meats, cut open the bag, sear it in a pan, slice it, put it on the plate. All the vegetables were purees and they had piping bags under heat lamps piped up there. They took it and they piped it on the plate and they put their meat and they put their drizzle and this drizzle and a little garnish of this and made it pretty. And I was so bored. And was it delicious? It was nice. Was it outstanding? No. There was no art of cooking. There was assembly. It was cook it in a bag. The vegetables were cooked in a bag. The potatoes were in a piping bag. Everything was in a bag. And all they did was open the bag, sear the meat, slice the meat. Yes, it's perfectly cooked from that aesthetic visual perspective. But there's no talent going into cooking it in a bag. There's no talent in that whatsoever there's no anything other than set the time set the temperature and call it a day i'll come back in a day i'll come back in half an hour i'll come back in six hours whatever it is it has a purpose i like it for certain things in big restaurants and hotels but you know what you're in a hot little kitchen cook that's what you got in this business I didn't get in it to boil food in a bag of water. I got in it to cook food, to touch it, to feel it, to, to season it, to massage it, to put it on my grill or put it in a frying pan and to watch it cook and learn how it cooks and manage how it cooks, not just make my life easy. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I just think that the art of cooking needs to be cooking. Just to add to that, <clears throat> I go to a restaurant more so these days for foods that I am not able to 
pair in my own home that's what i seek in a restaurant i'm like you you know if i want a burger i'm gonna make a fucking burger and it's gonna be a fraction of the price and better than any burger in the city because i made it right and it's i'm gonna whatever i have fresh herb wise or you know extra onions because you and i love onions yeah and you never get enough onions when you want them you never get enough you never onions. get enough onions Is that you can say give me quadruple onions they still fuck it up this is what i'm talking about this is yeah. why you're here today <laughs> so when i go to a restaurant where am i sitting oh uh, for me yeah when i'm going to a restaurant my favorite place to sit personally is at the bar that's where I want to sit. I like eating at the bar. Um, I hate sitting in a chair and having a waiter stand over my shoulder. And I hate it when they touch me. You know, I'm not your friend. I don't know you. Unless I know you, don't touch me. <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird that way. But it, it's, I like the bar. I find it more comfortable, more personable. Um, bartenders are, you know, they're not usually as uptight as a waiter is. That's where I go. And if not the bar, the best next place is the kitchen. The, the, ki the kitchen view chef's of the table. kitchen, right? Yeah. Like that's that's where I want the action. Yeah, but the kitchen guys are never pouring you shots of bourbon and giving you an ice cold beer. <laughs> so you know, here. priorities are priorities here. You know, I want that cocktail, and then I want to eat something great. So let's get back a little bit to the origin story of Ted, only because I, I hate saying it. You've been doing this for so long, right? I, I'm I, fucking old. The, I think I did some research. There's a restaurant you've worked at, and his either brampton i think it was the old house or something with a gentleman named gus uh, the, old, bell? the old school restaurant in uh halfway between brantford and paris ontario is this i'm doing some research and, here yeah yo, you're going a long way back that would be 1983 82 so right after or before george brown before george brown okay, before and my first job in the in the kitchen my very first job was um i was stocking shelves at millward's iga in downtown paris ontario and i got iga doesn't date you enough right? no no it was millward's iga and i got i got fired um because i knocked over a skid full of coca-cola it was like 80 bottles or something that were smashed another on the day back they're floor. all bottles no they're, plastic yeah it was all glass and it was and and it was a shitty job i hated that job oh it was fucking horrible and and then i got a job washing dishes at the holiday inn in brantford ontario and i, I think i was 15 maybe at the time and uh and I, I remember I was I was washing dishes and I went to my chef and I said, is there anything I can do to like cook? Because this is a shitty job. And he says, you get your dishes done. You get your pots and pans done. I'll give you some basic prep and show you what to do. And so I would power and I am a motherfucking awesome dishwasher. All right. Like I can wash the pots and the pans like no tomorrow. And. I was good at it and then I because I wanted to learn to cook and so oh what was that chef's name Mike he was a British guy and then the sous chef was Klaus Rostanovic and Klaus was cool shit man he's he lives in the KW area now and he's still a cool fucking guy and I love Klaus and he taught me a lot of stuff 
in the kitchen. Good things and bad things. But that was where it happened. And then I ended up at the old school restaurant and I was doing prep work in the back and I was working. They would give out every night, they would give out onion soup in a pewter crock and you had to heat, put the, the garlic toast on it and then you would put or the, the bread crouton and then you would put the shredded cheese and you'd have to heat it under the salamander. I don't know how many fucking times a day I burned myself on that thing. And it was just, yeah, the job was garlic bread and, and onion soup. And all night long, it was onion soup under the salamander, garlic bread under the salamander. And you would, baskets would be going out all night long. And it was crazy. And Gus, man, he was a bit of an asshole. I liked him. He's a family friend, but, um... He was a dick to work Still for. Still there. Still there. Still there. Uh, it's an institution. Yes. Gus is is an awesome man. He is a great server. He's been in the business forever running the restaurant. Uh, his brother's in the back in the kitchen, George. George is a sweetheart of a guy. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot working there at the old school. There's something to be... I learned how to cook steaks at the old school oh, restaurant. Oh, really? So okay. they were a steakhouse. And so I learned about... Uh, back then, you you could buy grades of meat that were gold and silver and and bronze and they had two flags and three flag levels and and so we learned a lot about that and how to trim a proper steak for a steakhouse and that was really where i got my basis on a grill it's interesting because i can't really ask you why did you want to barbecue because it's pretty obvious you know the lifestyle the fun and the product you get to consume you know but who got you into barbecue you know you you mentioned in previous interviews how you know the kind of celebrity chef was kind of just starting out when you were leaving george brown you kind of watched probably canadian classics like pasquale or walk with Jan. you know what i mean i watched those my favorite was Bruno Gerussi's Celebrity Cooks on CBC. And I think what I liked about it most was Bruno Gerussi's passion for food. He wasn't a chef. He was a guy that loved to cook. And he was a personality and he had lots of friends and his friends liked to cook. And that's what I loved about that show because it was friends getting together to cook food in a simple, delicious manner and drink some wine and have some fun and i I always liked that atmosphere to it i like the galloping gourmet and i like julia childs and all of those those shows and walk with yan and yan can cook um they were they were all part of my my foundation i wouldn't come home and watch cartoons i'd come home and watch cooking shows uh whatever it was and that was that was it but but food was always part of our life in our family my my grandparents were were from europe and um my grandfather worked for the prince de polignac of france who owned pomery vineyards and so there was there was always talk about food and dinners from around the world and I grew up with that looking at photographs of my grandfather at this banquet at this castle at this place and and he would tell stories of food and I just got hooked on it but barbecue grilling started with my dad and and the story is has been there but we didn't have we had a tripod charcoal little grill and it was old i don't know how long my dad had had it but i probably at this time i was probably seven or eight years of age and my dad was pretty frugal or cheap but the bottom rusted out of this thing and he put a piece of aluminum foil there and he put in the charcoal and it all fell through to the ground right and he was 
cursing and swearing and I'm like finally and my brothers are like yes we're gonna get a real grill and he just went into the woodshed and got a wheelbarrow and filled it with charcoal set it on fire with probably two containers full of lighter fluid and and went and took a shelf out of my mother's refrigerator and that was our grill wow and so I watched my dad cook um, these giant sirloin steaks two to three inches thick and he would marinate them in red wine and black pepper and a little bit of fresh herbs and garlic and whatever was in the garden and and he made a good steak and he would cook it to rare to medium rare and then he would slice it nice and thin and that's how we had steaks and it was always this big steak and sometimes we'd have new yorks and fillets but it was it was that big sirloin that he would just carve and it was that was that that and a burger and so i think that was sort of the beginning foundation of grilling um through all the restaurants i worked from the old school always ended up on the grill fascinated by it but it, it was dave nickel who uh when i was working at uh, at president's choice i went to work for loblaws and one of the first jobs well one of the, the the very first job i had was to finish writing the dave nickel cookbook and then the second was to to uh coordinate recipes and menus and run the dave nickel dinner that ran, ran at the sutton place hotel for a month-long period and we were flying in wagyu beef from japan before anybody knew what wagyu beef was it was it was crazy the menu was uh off the hook the sutton place hotel was phenomenal the chef was nels kelson at the sutton place and nels was it was an awesome awesome uh a chef and that was fun and then the third thing i did was the president's choice rib fest at the sky dome and I coordinated that and brought in barbecue guys from around the states and that would have been the summer of 1993 and is that when you were the executive chef yeah there? yeah what's that like You're, that was the coolest job ever man Tell, say the year again that you were there 1993 now if you're going to be in the sky dome at any year if it's not 1992, it's going to be 1993. Yeah. I, I, I was the, the exec chef of the Skydome Hotel, and I went in as the executive sous chef of the hotel when it opened in November of, uh, of 1989. And I remember there was a restaurant right down the street from you here. It was on the corner of King and Bathurst, and, and I was working at that place. And I was just like, this is a shit job. I hate this part of my business and I'm watching the Sky Dome being built and I'm like, I want to work there. And I got a job interview and the, the exec chef was name was Nigel shoot. He lives in Taiwan now. And, uh, Nigel was like, I want you to come and I want you to work at the hotel. I said, okay, well for five months, I hounded this guy to get that job because the hotel wasn't open. The dome was open. The Jays were playing, but the hotel was still behind and finally in november i went in and i was the exec sous chef to start it out and i eventually became the chef of the hotel and i was 26 years of age when i went into the sky dome and it was incredible the 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 feeling of the jays um was unbelievable the all-star game in 1991 i i rode the elevator up to my kitchen with president george bush senior at the time wow and and i was the only one allowed to use my 
an employee was the only one allowed to use the elevator, the freight elevator, because I had a walk-in fridge on the on the field level behind the Blue Jays dugout. And then four floors up was my kitchen. And it was the only way to get into the kitchen was through that elevator. And so it was Secret Service. There was a guy in there with a machine gun. And it was, it was, it was, <laughs> and, and, and I was having oh, to get man. all the, I was the only one from a certain time to a certain time allowed to get in that elevator and go down to the fridge. And I'm in there with a cart full of French fries. <laughs> and there's George Bush. So, so it was kind of cool. So do you attribute some of your cooking during that time period in the Sky Dome to the Jays eventually winning back-to-back World Series? I would say so. I mean, Robbie, Al- I Ro- Ro- Robbie Alomar lived in the hotel and, and I cooked him the same meal every day. That's it. Grilled chicken, steamed rice and broccoli. That's all he ever ate. Probably still that's all he ever Probably. eats. But he was an awesome ball player. Mm-hmm. Nice guy. Great, great guy. He looks so, the same. So maybe yeah. that's the the secret. Just eat uh, the clean foods for your entire life and you'll that's never it. change. Well, they say, you know, broccoli is the miracle vegetable. Really? Who, who are they? I don't know who they are, but you know, I personally think steak is the miracle animal. There you go. <laughs> so you're writing Dave Nichols cookbook for Loblaws. Is that the first foray into writing cookbooks? Yeah, really. Yeah, and this was kind of like given to you. Yeah, I was. I was. It was. They, they had another chef there. Her name was Allison Jarvis. Great girl. Um, and but there was a lot of pressure. This was their tenth anniversary of President's Choice, and and they were behind on a deadline, and they needed to get this book written. And I had been catering for the Nichols at their home and it was it was Christmas of 1992 and I'd finished um finished the catering and I was sitting down having a glass of wine with with uh, Dave's wife Terry and she's just the sweetest thing and she uh, she said to me she said you know if you ever want a job with Loblaws, just ask. And I said, I'm asking. And she leaned over and said, Dave, Ted's ready. And he said, come see me tomorrow in my office. So I went into his office the next day and I had a job. Wow. And basically went from there. And so it was it was to, to get in there and help finish with Allison to finish the development of all the recipes for that book. And they had to incorporate president's choice products into every recipe so whether it was a a certain memory sauce or it was a jam or a jelly or a hot pepper jelly or something like that or a vinegar or a salt or a cookie whatever it was was part of that book and they were a lot of the recipes were were of uh from dave and from terry nickel and the stories were elaborated and and we had uh two food writers working the book with us as well so I learned a lot about that with working with those food writers because they, you know, I had to write recipes and I was a chef and writing recipes as a chef is chicken scratch on a sheet of paper. And so for for me in there, it was learning, okay, well, I have to take my typing skills from grade nine and learn how to, to type up a recipe. And so they, they showed me the format and this is how they wanted it. And this is what I learned to write to. And that format became the base for all of the writings I've ever done ever since. So how how was your first experience when it came to publishing your books finally? It was interesting. The first book that went out was through Cottage Country, and I had nothing to do with that book. It had my name on it, but I had nothing to do with it, and it was a piece of shit. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it was done. I didn't like the photography. I had nothing to say about it, uh, and I never made any money off of it. It was kind of like, holy fuck. 
Learning experience. Uh, learning experience. And then I decided I wanted to write a book and I had this concept and I spoke to my friend Kathleen and she was one of the, the food writers at, at Loblaws. And so she says, well, I'll write it and you create it. So I created the recipes and she wrote it for me and, and wrote and edited and put it all together. And we did this book called Sticks and Stones and uh, it won a Taste Canada uh, cookbook award back in, in 2000. And that was kind of nice. It had beautiful uh, photography in there by uh, Andreas Troutmandorf was our was our photographer back then and it was it was a great it was a great book and it was called sticks and stones and it was the first book ever written on the subject of plank grilling i'm not the founding father of plank grilling but i would say that i'm the founding pusher of plank grilling uh the first plank grilling recipe uh that i ever did was in the president's choice barbecue cookbook on how to plank salmon and you would go into Loblaws back in in the in the 90s and you'd buy uh, a side of salmon or, or a bunch of salmon a pound of salmon and you got a free grilling plank i remember to go home and, and make plank salmon and so that's where it had started and and uh, that's where i invented plank brie and and different recipes that came about through the art of planking and cooking on stone and cooking with vines um and sticks and pine needles and all kinds of things that are in the elements out there that even to this day that I still incorporate. I use more of the things from Mother Nature than I can because it's a great source and it's it's resourceful as well. So you're 21 books in at this point. Is this because people are just asking you to write more? You have all these new recipes coming up or people are just bugging you for new recipes? I don't know. I just like to write. So And I could do it... Uh, pretty quickly uh my last book gastro grilling i wrote in 17 days and i locked myself in my office which is my garage which is my think tank which is my place of creativity and uh, i started writing the book on november 6th and i finished it on literally november 22nd 23rd and handed it into my publisher for editing and then two weeks later we shot the entire book in in a two-week format and the book went to publish and in 2014 won uh, best barbecue best cookbook in canada for uh, cuisine canada getting books published is not easy is it because the notoriety has increased you know you pump out a few award-winning books and your publisher goes yeah like we'll take whatever book you give us well yeah the the, the well the publishing world is much smaller now than it oh, yes. ever was before but the publishing companies have been buying each other up but what they forgot about is the author and a lot of these guys uh, and companies the author gets nothing and it's our artwork. It's it's the work that we we put our hard-earned effort into, and they pay minimal. And then the way that they set up their royalties is that you have to sell a ridiculous amount of books in this country, and to be able to actually make any money on royalties. And it's, it's not easy. Books are for promotion. Books are not about making a living off of a book. There's very few books that make you a ton of money. Canadian living books, they make money. But a lot of other cookbooks don't. If you're in your restaurant, you're able to sell the books every day. Um, that's a good way to, to keep that revenue stream going. But you know, a lot of guys, they own a restaurant, they write one book. 
me, I didn't have a restaurant. Um, I've never wanted to be in a restaurant. I wanted to have, I worked long and hard in, in hotels and other restaurants. I just never wanted to own my own. And when I got into product development, I realized that I had a lot of weekends off and a lot of evenings off. Then I got into barbecue and then my life changed forever into chaos. But it, it's for, for the writing now with the publishers the way they are is... I believe the only way to publish a book is to self-publish and look for a distributor that can distribute your book efficiently because the bottom line is I write in a certain format. Back when I started writing my books, there were food there were food writers. And then I would look at my books and my recipes and I go, "Well, that's not what I really wanted to say. And why did you change my my voice to this generic voice instead of the voice of Ted Reader?" And so with Gastro Grilling, I did uh, I hired a, a copy editor basically just to review that I was grammatically correct and spelling correct and all of that stuff. But every word is my word and it's written in my voice and that's and that's the way it should be and you should with whatever you feel and and and, and that's because social media has come on board and, and i want to talk about uh, that because you know what's in a book these days especially for someone who can be reached online and see your travels and get inspired by your instagram you know with today's internet accessibility what's it like still pushing out books are the books different now now, you know, is it uh, something to do with online content versus physical book sales? Do you see that affect you directly? Cookbooks are still the most popular book out there. Uh, people want to hold it, feel it, touch it, turn the pages. The problem with social media comes that it's instant. It's instantaneous. You put it up today. It's forgotten in an hour. And it requires work and time to go and search out 50 different types of recipes and, uh, and, and how they're done and the ingredients and everything else. In a book, it's there. It's in one package. Whether it be an online book, that will be more of the sales nowadays, uh, is to have that online capability. But I see books as an evolution. Books are going to be, one, uh, more, cookbooks will be more online. There'll still be a hardcover book, but where the online comes in is that your books will now have live video and you'll have, you'll have, you know, here's how you do it with a video in that online. Photographs are ex extremely important. You can't write a cookbook without a photograph now. It's not worth it. Um, people don't want to buy them. If they do buy them, they make whatever they see in the six or seven or eight photos that are in there. Photos are important. My last book had 120 some odd recipes and over 200 photos. You have to have pictures. You have to get people enticed uh, to, to get hungry via the photograph. They're not getting hungry because of the title. They're not getting hungry because of the ingredients in the recipe. They're getting hungry because it looks damn good. And that is, is what I see as the future. You have to make it look damn good. You have to offer a different style. Right now, tomahawk steaks are all the rage. Every tomahawk, 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 tomahawk. Great. If I see one more steak being carved online of a tomahawk, I'm done. It's, it's enough. Uh, it's sensory overload, right? It, it's enough cheeseburgers that are 16 inches thick. And I wrote that shit. But it's now, it's how about 
just the best burger. We did this in a simple, easy format because the one thing we've lost is time. 20 years ago, 24 hours in a day was pretty cool. We had a life. Now we're going, we're going. It's all what's next, what's next, what's next. Pick up the phone. Oh, how many people said they liked my photo today, right? And it's, I like my fan base, but the substance of life is not my fans. My substance of my life is my family and the food that I cook. I share it because I have to share it. It's part of the business now. Um, I tried to fight it. Other chefs I know have tried to fight it. We all end up, if we're going to stay in it, we have to do it. Um, our managers, our, uh, our, our, our team, everybody expects it. Marketing expects it. Owners expect it for your restaurants. If you're not doing it, how come you didn't post? You should be posting food every day about our place, getting it out there, getting people enticed to come to your place. And that's all great. It's a great way to build your business. But sometimes you leave your family behind and, and I don't want to be there. They're kind of cool. <laughs> Social media is definitely one of those foodie trends that does definitely take us away from the food in a lot of ways. Yes, it entices us, it markets it, but at the end of the day, unless it's in front of me, I, I could, I, I'm only as interested as the food that's in front of me, not not right. not on a on a picture. What are some of the other trends? Whether it's in the barbecue cooking itself, or like maybe competition stuff. Like, what are the trends today that are kind of either annoying, taking away from the art form, or actually helping the art form? Well. Competition barbecue is is an area that is uh, growing and is is massive. Do you compete? It, I don't compete. I have competed. It's not something that I've ever really wanted to focus on and, and something I haven't had the time to do. But uh, I enjoy competition. I like... Um, the one-on-one -on -one black box competitions, those are a little more fun for me. I don't have the time to spend a weekend at a barbecue place. I'd rather sit at the beach, drink a beer, look at my kids play in the lake and have fun. So I, I've, my priorities might be distant. Some people want that, that they want to cook it and they want to make it perfect and they want to cook those ribs to be absolutely perfect every time they do it. That's phenomenal. I think competition barbecue is good for the business. It gets more people excited. You see neighborhood rib fests. You know, we're going to have 20 houses in the neighborhood. We're cooking. We got a judging panel and, and they're doing it. That's exciting. When people are having community barbecues and neighborhood barbecues and everybody's a potluck bringing, I got sausage, I got burgers, I got pulled pork, I got ribs, whatever. That's exciting. And I think competition barbecue, getting people hungry for barbecue is great. Competition barbecue tends to be focused on pork shoulder, whole hog, uh, brisket, sausage, chicken in a variety of different ways. And then they throw in their turkey as well and ham if necessary. But really barbecue and grilling, there's so much more to do. Where a lot of people are focused on smoking low and slow and taking your time. I'm focused on, well, how do I turn this into hot and fast? And how can I cook a short rib of beef, um, four bones, in under four hours? Where I remember last year when I was in Germany, I cooked this short rib and it took three and a half hours to cook these two racks of short ribs. And I cooked them at uh, somewhere in the range of about 335 to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, which was hot, 
and fast where everybody's most people are when they're doing that barbecue that low and slow they're down around that 180 to 225 range that takes a long time and a lot of patience and we don't have time so i i started messing around with saying well i understand the principles and the science about low and slow it's about the penetration of the smoke and it's about the 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 juiciness of the meat but there's always a different way to to slice a pie and so for me it's how can i smoke a short rib can it be hot and juicy it all comes down to that internal temperature so how fast can i get to that internal temperature and if it's the right cut of meat will it stay moist and juicy a short rib is a lot of fat it's going to stay moist and juicy i wouldn't do that with something that's extremely lean right you've got you've got to figure out what that item's going to be but that hot and fast makes a difference and when i served that short rib to those guys in germany and they're like they were i i do my short short rib for 48 hours in sous vide i said i put salt and pepper on this and put it in that kamado and it's done in under four you want to waste electricity or do you just want to get to eating and so there's different ways to look at it there's no one way and a lot of barbecue guys are like, oh, it has to be low and slow. I agree, it has to be low and slow. But if I don't have time, why can't it be hot and fast and still be moist and juicy and still have a smoke ring and still be penetrated with smoke and, and flavor? So if I can go into those realms of cooking and offer that to my fan base and to my viewers and to folks that are buying consumers that are buying my cookbooks and they can go wow i can smoke hot and fast and i could have it done and i don't have to be in the shit right oh i didn't get my fire lit the wind was this and this is this and now there's no way we're going to eat before 10 o'clock tonight crank it up Get it cooked. Sit down and have a nice time with your friends and family because it's more important. So that's interesting to me because I'm of the old school method that, you know, I do understand that low and slow is the kind of, you know, try, tested and true. We, we, we believe in low and slow because it works. But it also makes sense to me that there are other ways to do it. I'm not just saying it makes sense to not just cook it low and slow. I'm saying that barbecue, it's that science we talked about before. Yeah. It's these elements that you kind of have to fight against. And time is definitely one of them. And I think you have to be just as good as understanding the low and slow than you have to be versatile. Right. And that's what it seems like you're able to do is, is take yourself back and be like, listen, we can still achieve a different goal. It's still a goal and we can walk away satiated because that's what it really comes down to. It's yeah. amazing. Like I love cooking ribs in my home, 200 and some odd degree in my oven. I, I live in a condo. I, you know, I have access to, yeah. you know, gas barbecue, but you know, I want to be home. It's middle of winter. I want ribs. Yeah. I'm basting. I'm low and slow my own barbecue sauce. I feel just at home, no pun intended. Then I I would if i was on a smoker on a barrel mm -hmm. for yeah. six to 12 hours so you have yeah. to really take advantage of your elements and make it so, or you're never going to get barbecue no exactly uh i go to I, I go on a trip to florida and i spend a couple weeks down there with the family i don't grill in those two weeks i have an oven 
in in the condo and they have a no grill policy on the balconies and i don't feel like going all the way down by the pool to fire up a grill to come all the way back up you know what's the point so i turn my oven into a smoker so i set the temperature at 200 degrees i take a, a, a tray i put uh, i've taken walnut shells pistachio shells peanut shells i've taken dried orange peel um, i've taken wood chips uh, and then i I, I get the pan that I have that in heating up on the burner. So once it starts to smoke, I pop it into the oven. I turn on the fan and I keep that oven at 200 degrees and I replenish my smoke as I need. And I smoke low and slow wow. in the oven at 200 degrees. That's an internet show, Ted. Right? You're not so, making that into a YouTube channel. How <laughs> to condo like smoke. Right. But the, the also the, the thing about when I lived in, in downtown Toronto, uh, I had six grills and smokers on my balcony and it was against every bylaw in the, in the city of Toronto. But the Kamado that I had is the safest grill for any balcony. You get yourself a tiny little big green egg, right? As long as you close that top vent and you close that bottom vent, you have snuffed the fire and, and the wind doesn't affect it right because you, you're cooking with that lid closed the only thing you have to worry about is the amount of smoke and so if you're in a well ventilated area it's a good it's a good thing but as i say check the bylaw check the yeah. rules of your building you could be evicted for doing something stupid like that so you have to yeah. you have to see what it was where i lived it was like oh you're that barbecue guy you have like six on your balcony yeah there was no place to sit but we could cook who needs to sit when you're eating uh it's only illegal if you get caught there folks uh i just want a few more questions here i know uh, i have a little bit more of your time i know we've been talking for quite a while have you ever taken a week off of grilling just like you're done i just need a break and then what are you craving when you're not eating barbecue are you going for ethnic food is it just your wife i am i am uh, i am well breakfast i i have two favorite things for breakfast my wife's cooking for breakfast because she does an awesome job and the torbram restaurant out by the airport theodosis in the kitchen and his wife calliope they've been in business for 40 years they do an awesome breakfast and a wicked ass club sandwich that's yeah. my breakfast mood and that's better in. than a greek diner exactly but i i want chinese thai vietnamese japanese that's what i crave when i'm not eating something off the grill uh, i don't go to a lot of barbecue restaurants i've i used to work uh, in product development for a rib processing plant out of chicago we would cook about 40 million pounds of ribs a year based on my formulations and so i'm kind of tired of pulled pork brisket and and ribs because i've cooked so many ribs over my career um even in general as somebody yeah. who eats as much southern barbecue or yeah. loves as much as i do you can only eat so much brisket yeah. you know but if i'm in texas well that's different and if I'm in a certain city in the States or a certain state uh, and and I know there's a great barbecue restaurant, I'm definitely going to try totally. it. Totally. I'm all for that. But I also want to check out, uh, I love steakhouses. 
and I think uh, I'm always looking for the next best steak and I like it local and I like it over a charcoal and I like it this and I like it that and I'm always searching for that next great steak. What about here in Toronto? Where's where's some of your favorite steakhouse? I, I'll tell you mine after yours just because okay. I have a, a little bit of a skewed list. Well, my 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 favorite would, would have to be uh, Barbarians and Zorro's. Zorro's out by the airport. Johnny, uh, they've been in business forever and Johnny's always cooked me a great steak there. I love it. Uh, Zorro, uh, sorry, um, uh, Barbarians, it's been a favorite. I loved when I lived uh, in the gay ghetto, I, I loved Carmen's way back when. Uh, then it changed ownership, then it closed, then it's reopened. But way back, that was one of my favorites. And it's no longer but Senior's Steakhouse at Young and St. Clair. My dad Claire. took me once. My dad took me once. Uh, yeah, pretty good steak. Not even the pretty good steak. The ribs were amazing, but yeah. at the beginning, you get served this pickle and then the salmon kind of The tiramisolata, yeah. yeah, yeah. Holy and the cottage cheese and the, blown. Yeah, yeah, and the garlic bread and great service. And, uh, Too bad that place. I think it got... A con must be in a condo, yeah, or something. Or something. But, but Eddie, Eddie was his name, and he made the best sauteed mushrooms. He got his pans super, super smoking hot, and he tossed them in with salt and pepper, and then he fried them in an oil kind of butter mix, and they would get caramelized and lose that moisture, and they were just the best flavored mushrooms on a steak ever. Yeah, that place is amazing. That yeah. was amazing, and I remember it had like the kind of like diner in the bottom, basically. Yeah. Yeah. this like really interesting appeal to it because anybody could go and anybody did go and I remember my dad taking us when I was a teenager I remember it like vividly yeah. so I'm also a steakhouse guy this is funny because you and I uh, have similar paths when I tell people what my favorite steakhouse is I say tulip Oh yeah, yeah! Out on out on Queen Street there at uh, at uh, what Coxwell, Coxwell area? Parliament. Yeah, you got yeah. it. Not too many people yeah. my age yeah. know what tulip is. Tulip is yeah. And, it was like yeah. the red onion or the purple onion that was out at uh, uh, Keel and St. Clair. Another great steakhouse, great diner steakhouse. Yeah, family yeah. style. Yeah. Listen, I take my girlfriend now. Uh, we split a porterhouse, Ugh. all the fixins. All the I get fixins. a French, French onion soup. She gets a, a glass of wine with tip, $60. Oh, yeah. How can you go? Tulip. You, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's great, right? It, it, it's a perfect, it's a perfect thing. I mean, take me to Jacob's. Sure. You yeah. want to, you want to, if it's on you. I'll, yeah. I'll go to Jacobs. Yeah, Jacobs, Mortons—they're—they're they're all good. They're all you know. Definitely, they all have their own flair. They all have their own flair, and they all do a good, a good job. That they're buying great quality beef. That's the important part. Uh, what I like about Zorro's is still they're cooking on charcoal. And that that makes they haven't gone that eighteen hundred degree infrared grill like a lot of the, the the big chain steakhouses have done the Ruth Chris and the Mortons. But do you remember uh, a place for steak and seafood? It was in the Bathurst and Shepherd Plaza. Where like Bagels Plus is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Bathurst. If Bath my research was is that Steve's, because Steve's is at Bath. No, Bathurst and Shep. Bathurst. Steve's is that diner. Yeah, they're at Bathurst and Wilson. So this was an older place. It's, it's now, if my um, research has done me correctly, your your divorce lawyer of a wife is Jewish. Yes. Right. So did she grow up in the Bathurst Manor? Yes, she did. So she would know yes. a place for stay. I'll ask her next time I see. Her. I will. I will. I will. I will ask her to that tonight when I see her. But the 
there was a for the longest time at Jane and Wilson, there was a steakhouse called Bill's Pit. And I remember we used to, my wife and I, before we had kids, we would go to Bill's Pit. It was close because we lived out in the hood. And so we'd go to Bill's Pit and it was in this, it was a pretty scary plaza at night at Jane and Wilson. And you'd go in, but there was this steakhouse and it was packed. And I remember going in there for dinner one night and I had ordered a, a rib steak uh, medium rare and it came out well done, which was, you know, a mistake. And it happens. And so I said to the waiter, I said, it's well done. Could I get a medium rare, please? And he takes the plate back and then he comes back to the table and he puts it back down in front of me. And he says, the chef says it's medium rare. Wow. And I got up and left and never went back. Just got up. My wife and I just got up and left. I said, no, I'm not going to do this. Not going to. And it was probably about a year later. The manager sees me at some trade show and he says to me, great guy, great guy. And he says, uh, we lost you that night. And I said, yeah, you did. And he oh, said, man. would you come back? And I said, I come back for you. I'll, I'll come back. Okay. But, you know, and I had stood up to look at the chef and went like, really, you're going to question my knowledge of a steak. And I never say that. Right. But it was just like, come on. It was clear. It was clear. And even if it was nice and moist and juicy, but it was beyond, it was like it had been sitting there and, oh, I'll just get rid of it and he, they'll never notice. Right. Well, I noticed and, and I do notice and I do care. And so I went back and continued to eat there until they closed and they moved and then they closed from there. So I, it, it was a sad thing. But my mother-in-law, she would, she wanted, she loved the ribs at Bill's Pit. That was that was her thing. And she'd send my father-in-law out like late at night, right? Nine o'clock, ten o'clock at night to go get her ribs on a Saturday night after the Sabbath was over. It's like, <laughs> so, and he would go and he would get, and he's such a nice guy, right? But he would go and get his wife ribs. And that was her thing. This so, is cute. Very yeah. cute story. Yeah. Ted, I could talk to you about barbecue and steak <laughs> forever. I'm going to have to have you come back. Anytime. Uh, uh, yeah. What are you uh, planning on for, like, what's the future? What's going on? Like, I, I know we're uh, heading into the holiday season now. It's going to be quiet. It's winter time, time to spend with our family. Any plans for the new year? Well, I've, yeah, quite a few plans for the new year. One, we're, um, we're starting to write. And so there is a new book in the works. Okay. Uh, and I'm, I haven't, I sort of have what my style will be, which will be a very simplified, very fresh, not organic, but organic in the way of cooking. Uh, there will be no, uh, no aluminum foil, no gas. The only gas I use is to light my charcoal and it's a flamethrower blowtorch because it, get your charcoal hot and fast super quick so we're gonna we're gonna start writing there's um there's three books in the works there is the divorce lawyer cooks breakfast that is coming and uh the other is uh, a vegetarian grilling book and then there is my new barbecue book which will be whatever it will be and it's i don't know um It'll be a lot of fire. Let's just put it that way. That's what I like to hear. Well, I'm excited to have you come back because I feel like we're just scratching the surface with you, Ted. There's well, just so much more to say. Well, there, there's a lot more. And maybe what we should do is uh, you come out 
to Casa Barbecue and you come for lunch. Okay. And I'll cook lunch and we can shoot the shit and talk barbecue and see and I'll light a bunch of fires and and we'll do. And it's, uh, you know, you arrive at 11, I throw you out at 2 and it's, um, you just have to tell me if you're allergic to anything. Other than that, things are pretty much wide open. Only if I can bring my father and he brings the cigars. Yes, you can bring your father for sure. <laughs> for sure. Ted, I want to thank you so much. We're definitely going to have another episode with you because I can nerd about steak and fire and barbecue till the cows come home and they better be coming home because we're going to eat them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I want to thank my guest Ted Reader. Catch him on social media at Ted Grills on Twitter and Instagram TedReader.com for his books, his products just to catch up with what he's doing and if you want to, I usually ask a fight, fast lightning round question. They're all on his website. It's very informative. Check him out on YouTube. I want to thank the king of the queue. <laughs> Ted Reader, it's such an honor having you in the Speaking Duck show in the Never Sleeps Network studios. Thank you again for coming. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of Speaking Duck on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 